Good morning. Thank you very much for coming. We like these events to be topical, but we didn't quite appreciate how topical this event would be this morning. We've even laid on the headlines for you. And uh, Carol Stone tells me that she forgot to introduce Andrew Neil to David Abrahams at her party last night. So uh, before I hand over to Andrew, uh, for those of you who don't regularly attend these events, what are these events? Well, Editorial Intelligence makes it its business to read and summarize and analyze every word of comment published in the UK because we think increasingly there's evidence that the commentariat, the likes of Stefan Stern, directly influence and shape public debate and public policy uh, in a way that the newsmakers don't do as much as those making the policies themselves. So we bring them together with opinion formers and movers and shakers and you, some of the self-same, to discuss key issues of the day. Anyone that wants specific data and analysis and breakdown of the issues can come to us for all sorts of digests, many of which you already receive. So that's the plug for EI and the context for EI. I will say, uh, if you haven't noticed, this event is being recorded because it's going to be podcast, therefore it is on the record, and therefore no mobile phones should be used to interrupt its wonderful flow. So I'm going to hand over to Andrew. I have got an incredibly long, illustrious uh, CV of Andrew's in my hand, but actually Andrew is one of the very few people that doesn't need any introduction, except that he is one of the great media and business polymaths in this country, former newspaper editor, now dominates much of the BBC's political chat and uh, is required viewing and he is going to take us through this morning at a great clip. Andrew. Good morning to everybody here. We are going to have a debate this morning from our speakers on the platform. Then we want to hear from you. We'll be very efficient. They will speak for no more than five minutes each. We'll be quite ruthless in keeping them to time. Uh, and we'll get you away to your busy schedules, uh, having been inspired by what you're about to hear. Uh, the motion before is, uh, is, has business fallen out of love with labor? since everybody else seems to have fallen out of love with labor. I don't see why business should be any different, but we'll, we'll hear what our speakers have to say. Our first speaker this morning is Tony Manwaring. He's chief executive of Tomorrow's Company. Tony. Uh, thanks. As Julia said, uh, we chatted about this yesterday. And when I was first asked to speak on this, I thought I was going to say something quite interesting and challenging and provocative. That was a few weeks ago. And now I kind of fear it's going to be rather mundane and prosaic. Um, the fundamentals of the answer, I think, you need to go back to, which are about uh, business, many business leaders do have long memories. They remember the days of Black Wednesday. They remember the days when Britain's membership of Europe was being called into question. And they contrast that with the Chancellor, now Prime Minister, uh, who has delivered growth and stability around those basic operating issues. So, you know, I think not yet rushing to the, yes, business has totally fallen out of labor, but I think it's certainly not anything that would resemble a passionate love, um, and very few would dare speak its name. The context for this, uh, way back when, is that labor ver had very little credibility with business, and you can, in a sense, take that uh, either of two ways. You can either argue that having established some credibility and some real credibility, that's going to take a little longer to dissipate than you might think. On the other hand, you could say that the kind of natural default position of business and labor is not one of um, mutual uh, respect and support. But when labor did come in, I think it got a few things right, uh, not just the Bank of England, but its fundamental attitude to business was very different from previous labor governments, and if you like, it was regulation light, uh, as reflected in the reform of company law. But if you step back, there's a deeper truth. And the deeper truth is, is as much about politicians as business leaders as it is about labor and politicians. It's that politicians live in this febrile 24-7 Westminster goldfish bowl, very fo focused on the short term, on votes, on the media. Um, and probably it wouldn't be unfair to say that one or two politicians are rather ego-driven. Whereas business leaders, I think, very much thinking about the long term, thinking about projects and program delivery, thinking about outcomes. And yes, there are some exceptions to this, but actually quite a lot of business leaders are rather shy and withdrawn, don't like the media game, and want to keep out of it. So there's a kind of basic uh, cultural uh, difference. Labor and business, I think, connected around issues of brand and called Britannia and so on, around issues of celebrity, 
uh, around issues of tax, the windfall tax, and around issues where business leaders became rather useful Mr. Fixits coming in to deal with issues of social welfare reform, but never actually respected for business and business delivery. But I think there's a, a, a on the one, whereas for the Conservatives, um, perhaps the professionalisation of the new Tory party, um, it's obviously making some very shrewd judgments, um, but nevertheless, people without the kind of non-executive director background that previous generations of Tory leaders had in general. Um, with Labour, I think, I say this having worked there, um, there is a sense of Labour not quite getting organisations, organisational behaviour, what makes them work. There is a tendency to manage by rule um, and not really getting at all um, the business of business and wealth and entrepreneurship. And that really coming out in kind of rather sharp and um, tough way on the recent reform of capital gains tax. And just to put that in some context from a tomorrow's company perspective, you get a perverse impact there where PAs and secretaries in some businesses are setting up rather imaginative schemes which are giving employees a stake and a shareholding in their company are suddenly finding that they're losing a thousand quid uh, because of the reduction in capital gains tax that's being planned, which may or may not sound a lot, but to them it is, and to their bosses, it's a fundamental break with the kind of ownership uh, and stakeholder model that they were arguing for and that we believe in as tomorrow's company. And the uh, removal of tapering will mean that actually people can invest in business like they can invest in pork bellies. Investing in business becomes like investing in any commodity, which we think is awful, because business should all about be, be about long-term building relationships, building continuity, built to last. Um, I close with... Um, uh, it's, 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 it's really helpful that um, Shakespeare actually um, contributed a whole play uh, on the subject matter, Love's Labour's Lost, um, and he wrote, the words of Mercury are harsh after the songs of Apollo, you that way, we this way. So you can judge whether it's uh, business la or labour now who are Mercury or Apollo. Thanks, Tony. Um, so the an your answer to the question, has business fallen out of love with labour, is what? It's kind of teetering on the edge, heading that way, not quite there yet. So we'll take that as a yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it is. I think there are some senior business leaders who respect um, the growth, who respect uh, the achievements and delivery, um, and aren't yet caught up totally in the kind of Westminster froth of it. Okay. Um, I don't think there'll be any doubt about how our next speaker is going to answer the question, she, because she's not just a consultant to the pharmaceutical industry, she's vice chair of the Conservative Party for Women. Margot James. Yes, yeah, so I do take a slightly different stance, uh, but it's a good question. Um, and it m prompted me to think, well, what type of love affair was it that uh, business had with Labour? And I think it was a sort of love affair that uh, it, it, it illustrated by the rather sad sort of example of the man who falls for the wrong woman. The woman who's bad for him really underneath. Uh, she might be full of economic growth, but, uh, you know, she's two-timing him behind his back with a lot of stealth taxes, public spending out of control, and millions spent on welfare payments to conceal the fact that hundreds of thousands of children are leaving school unskilled and without hope in today's world. So I thought, well, why has business been deluded in this relationship for so long? And if you look at the reasons for the economic growth, uh, I'm not saying that the government's had nothing to do with it, of course, but it does date right back to the Thatcher reforms, and in particular, the deregulation of the city, which, let's not forget, contributes hugely to tax revenues and balance of payments, and continues to do so. And you can track all that back to Thatcher, as you can track the whole labour market flexibility back to Thatcher as well. Um, a resistance to EU excess has undoubtedly been a, a part of our growth, and I think that this government has credit for not falling for joining the Euro, uh, and Brown has been the main architect of that policy. Resistance to EU excess is another factor, therefore. Um, uncontrolled immigration has undoubtedly fueled economic growth, in my view, uh, and obviously the public expenditure rises has been fantastic, especially for the construction industry. All those, uh, all those ill-thought-out PFI schemes, which we are going to be paying for hand over fist for the next three decades, but very good for shareholders in the construction industry. Uh, 
So what's, what's really causing the sort of the chickens to come home to roost in this relationship? I think government sees the slow, uh, business sees obviously the slowdown in spending coming through. The social problems are hitting business as well. The social problems caused by uncontrolled immigration um, and also caused by the fact that we're spending so much on health and education that we can't afford to spend anything on the home office and crime and prisons and all of those other things which a business suffer from just like everybody else. Um, so, and, and of course it's taxes. And it's taxes and regulation really, isn't it? It's the renaissance of old labour under a new prime minister. Um, and the taxes, of course, aren't so stealthy now, are they? The capital gains tax debacle, I think, has been very clear uh, to business. And it's a reminder of all those other small tax increases uh, that, when taken together, have added to quite a burden on business. And, and as for regulation, I was surprised um, to hear you say, Tony, that regulation light, I think you said. Perhaps it was at the beginning, but it certainly hasn't been since. And uh, regulation, uh, and I think the, the fact that business sees government and the Labour Party judged by such different standards. The whole debacle we're going through at the moment. You know, imagine that, if that was business. We, in business, have to live by terrific regulations and also Sarbanes-Oxley and all of that, whereas government and the Labour Party, it seems, can get away with anything. So it's the whole sleaze, incompetence and drift, I think, which is uh, backed up by the fact that the whole tax issue and the regulation issue is, is causing damage now. Uh, I, I think really that it's the drift and the disappointment uh, inherent in, in the business view now that has put paid to the relationship. And I think it, business has definitely fallen out of love with this government. If our business has fallen out of love with Labour, what's the evidence that's falling in love with the Tories? Well, the, the evidence is that it, I think after the party conference that we had, uh, I think that people saw George Osborne as a future Chancellor, possibly for the first time. And I think that there is evidence to show that Osborne is better regarded than any of the, the Labour opponents. But what is that evidence? well, polling evidence uh, among yeah. business. I've got sheets of paper that I haven't bored you with uh, in my handbag behind me. Uh, but there was uh, a poll um, published in the Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago which showed that George Osborne led uh, both Darling and Brown in terms of business confidence. There was a business survey published by the Institute of Directors back in April, actually, um, which showed that on tax and regulation, um, 75% more than business leaders um, were very uh, opposed to the government's record. I do think we have got further to go, of course, as the Conservative Party. We won't win power just by uh, not being the Labour government. We do have further to go, Andrew, but I think we're well on our way. Okay. I'll let you rummage through your handbag while the next speaker uh, <laughs> takes the stage. Uh, he's David Frost, not the one who broadcasts an obscure uh, channel uh, called Al Jazeera, uh, but the more famous one, the Director General of the British Chambers of Commerce, David. Okay, well, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm going to speak on, uh, not for the FTSE 100, not for the FTSE 250 companies, but really for that uh, vast and uh, small business market, often s small family-owned businesses that are the backbone um, of Britain. Uh, those businesses that are often portrayed as being the backbone of the Conservative Party. Um, but what has surprised me um, over the last uh, 10 years uh, has been to the degree in which those uh, businesses um, have bought in uh, to this government's um, um, enterprise agenda. Uh, and I think uh, they did that firstly um, because of the very strong macroeconomic stability uh, that they'd had over the, over the last 10 years. What business had craved very strongly uh, in the post-war era was an end to uh, boom and bust, an end to periods of rapid growth and then the brakes were put on uh, firmly, and to really a position of stability in which they could plan. And I would uh, suggest very strongly um, that they had, they had had that. Um, I think they also bought in 
uh, very strongly uh, into uh, Gordon Brown when he was a chancellor, his, his enterprise agenda. He, he could not get up without uh, talking about, uh, about enterprise, about the importance of small business, about the importance of encouraging young people to start uh, their own businesses, uh, and the constant comparisons uh, with the US and our need to emulate the US uh, in enterprise uh, formation. And I think and my travels around the country, whether it be literally from Aberdeen down to Brighton or from Pembroke to Norwich, um, I sp have spoken to hundreds of companies um, who would believe very strongly um, that this uh, government uh, did understand the needs of business. Now, I'm not going to say that everything was right. I think there are huge uh, uh, gaps that are still need to be fixed, but that, um, but that was the picture. But there's a very big but here, and I think the, the picture changed dramatically. Uh, it changed firstly uh, in the uh, budget this year uh, when the small firms rate of corporation tax uh, was increased. And I think the first sign there, well, you know, does this government really believe in, uh, in small business? Okay, the, uh, the, the, the normal size, the large company rate of corporation tax was cut, but small firms uh, was increased. I think the second uh, uh, indicator was, of course, the, the huge uh, CGT uh, debacle um, in the pre-budget report. Because there is, it's unquestionably the case uh, that the 10% uh, the rate of CGT had encouraged a huge increase in the number of businesses uh, within this country. It was a very, very strong stimulator um, of business, of business formation, and an entrepreneurial uh, culture uh, within this country. And at a stroke, um, business felt uh, that they now were no longer important, and we were simply going to be a cash cow uh, for the government, an enterprise uh, was, no, was no longer number one on the agenda. And uh, I do not think that this government understands uh, the, the, the seismic breakdown that there has been between uh, government and small businesses as a result of that one uh, single act. At the same time, um, at the Conservative Party conference, we had um, Osborne uh, made the announcement about the, uh, about the increase in thresholds for inheritance tax. And again, that was for the first time. Here we saw a party that was actually talking about essentially a a tax uh, re reduction. So I would suggest um, that the dynamics have changed quite dramatically, and they continue to change. Um, we are seeing now proposals for a huge range of additional taxes uh, coming through at a, a local level, which uh, uh, the DCLG ministers are, are encouraging. Um, we are seeing, and I absolutely agree with the point on, on red tape, it has not been a light touch with, with red tape. Our own figures with Manchester and London Business School show uh, that a 50 billion uh, um, hit in terms of the cost of uh, regulation and red tape. It is the number one issue for businesses. We have seen a lack of progress on education and skills and clearly a lack of progress in terms of, of, of transport. But you know, my proposition is this, that business had a very strong relationship with, with this government, but a few what people may see as small indicators, small moves, uh, small firms corporation tax, capital gains tax, um, I think have, have really changed that uh, relationship fundamentally. So in the answer to the, um, the question this morning, has business fallen out of love with labor, you would answer? Well, I would put it like this. I would say that it's you like- just say yes no, or no. No, I'm not gonna say yes or no. I'm gonna say uh, it's like any relationship, it's, it's, it's hit a very difficult patch, and essentially they're, they're almost at a period of talking to a marriage guidance counselor, and this can go one way or another. And in your relationship with the Tories, is that still, has that reached the snogging stage, or are we, um, <laughs> well, it, are we heading for heavy petting? Well, or? it's certainly not heavy petting yet. Um, I, I, I think the business, the business community <laughs> has, has got to be convinced. Uh, we, I do not think uh, any of the political parties are making the right noises about the importance um, of wealth creation in this, in this economy. It, it is too much about public expenditure. Yeah, it is yeah, too much right. about cutting that's up true. the cake. Yeah. And it is not enough about creating real wealth. Okay, thank you for that. You're agreeing? Yes, I do. So that's why your party said it will follow the Labour's tax and spend plans for the next three years? Well, not quite. I mean, the sharing of the proceeds of growth, growth strategy is, is not following the government's... No, no. It, it George, might not be going far enough in George terms Osborne of wealth has said that Labour's, the level of tax that Labour has spent in the spending review and the level of spending will be followed by an incoming Conservative government for the first three years. That's your party's policy. 
Our next speaker is a non-executive uh, director of British Airways. So those of you who have lost your luggage, just form an orderly queue. Uh, it's probably in Milan, I think, was the last time that we looked. She's also special advisor to the Royal Bank of Scotland. Actually, that should be senior advisor. Senior advisor? But does that mean you're not special? <laughs> probably not. Would you like to be special? Because I know Fred the Shred quite well. I have a word with him. I don't think Fred needs any more specialities than he's already got. Well, he's not when he's hunting for the sieves and the uh, CDOs. Uh, our next speaker, Denise Kingsmill. Well, in the words of that um, well-known business guru, Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? You know, and as my mother would say, <laughs> You know, love schmove. Let's recognise the reality of the whole thing. <coughs> business isn't in love with Labour, never has been. Business was never in love with the Tories, never has been. Business operates on the basis of self-interest. It has stakeholders, of course, but there's one stakeholder that ha takes priority over all the others, and that's the shareholder. Every chief executive I've ever advised is worrying about shareholder value, shareholder value, and shareholder value. That's what keeps him awake at night. And to the extent that a political party creates, uh, to the extent not a political party, rather, a government creates an environment in which business can flourish, and by that I mean a, a, an environment where there is a benign tax regime where there is a means by which uh, wealth can be created and that there is uh, reasonable regulation and a degree of stability, that's the sort of government that all businesses want. And the name of that government is really rather irrelevant to most uh, chief, execu chief executives. For the last 10 years, we have had a degree of stability that has enabled most businesses to do extremely well. We have a degree, uh, we've had a, 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 particularly in the city, we've had a light touch regulation. Those of us who sit in boardrooms know that the big difference between uh, an SEC um, um, uh, filing and the sort of filings that we have to have as a, as a FTSE 100, there's a big difference in the regulation that most, uh, most uh, UK companies have to, have to operate. And that's the reason why, um, with Sarbox and the, that sort of thing, why so many British companies are de registering from, um, from, from the US. We have, on the whole, had here in, um, in, the, in London, we've had 40 quarters of steady growth. We are outperforming our, our um, neighboring countries in the rest of Europe. We're doing okay. These things have cycles, and <coughs> all businessmen are perfectly uh, uh, understand uh, things about business cycles, but the extent to which they blame government for these things, or the extent to which they praise government for these things, for that matter, is, is relatively small. I think those of us who uh, operate in a, uh, you know, with a foot in both camps, a foot in, in uh, public service and a foot in, in, in business, sometimes wonder why the two uh, languages seem to be so very different. And I, I did do a, a little bit of a, a study and uh, noticed that most chief executives of the FTSE 100 companies are either accountants or engineers. Most um, politicians are lawyers. And sometimes I do think that might account for the fact that sometimes the language uh, uh, misses each other. But on the whole, I think um, falling in or out of love is not something that businessmen do very often. Well, at least not when they're running their businesses anyway. Gordon Brown's not a lawyer, though he may need one soon, but he's not a lawyer. <laughs> no, no that, that, that's, that's true, he's not. David Cameron's not a lawyer. Isn't he? No. No, no he's a PR man, isn't he? Yeah. That's right. Yes, isn't most of the Tory party PR Vin men these Vin days? Vince Cable's not a lawyer. He's good, isn't he? He's, he's good. He's, he he's the, he's the uh, daily politics candidate told, for the Lib Dem leadership. Exactly. It seems to me that he's, he's getting some good ones in in the, in, in the House. So I don't follow this thing very closely. But <laughs> so I, the, the, your answer to the question is? I don't think I have a yes or no answer. In fact, I think it's a. It's this not is becoming a theme of this morning, isn't it? Well, no, it's not a particularly. We've got good people with particularly strong views on this subject. 
do, is, is business falling out of love? I don't think it was ever in love, so can you fall out of love? Perhaps you'd know. Oh, yes, you can. I'll yes. tell you later. <laughs> <laughs> you can fall out when you've never been in, can Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Right. Okay. Happened only yesterday. <laughs> um, it was with Caroline after she just told me that, uh, Carol, that David Abrahams was in the crowd and didn't tell me at the time. Yes, I don't believe that. <laughs> Our final speaker this morning, before we throw it open to the floor, is the columnist for, for the Financial Times, Stefan Stern. Yes, well, good morning, and uh, thanks very much, Andrew, and, and to Editorial Intelligence for the chance to speak, if, if indeed my voice holds out for the next five minutes. That's the good news. It may run short. So we started with Love Lab Love's Labour's Lost. I was at King Lear last night, and I can tell you, if you think... The government's got problems, believe me. It's nothing compared with uh, the orgy of uh, death and disaster that I saw on stage last night. So it's a very, very, very elevating um, morning, Shakespeare and love. It's, I, didn't, I had no idea what I was coming to. Uh, Tina, when Turner. I, Tina Turner. And I, I, I unfortunately didn't... Uh, no wonder Deez is both a special and a senior advisor because she, she stole my uh, opening line about love. I think it's absolutely right that business was never in... Uh, love with uh, uh, Labour in the first place, so I th it is hard to describe them as having fall falling out of love with them. And I think Tony's point about the long memories is also important. I, I mean, a bit of context here, because in the 20th century, Labour governments always came into power in, in moments of uh, pretty severe economic uh, crisis, whether it was in the, the 20s at the end of uh, World War II in, in 1964 and again in 1974. You may remember Reggie Morling's uh, quip to... Um, to Jim Callaghan in, in, in 1964, and they, we met him at number 11. Was, so, sorry to leave things in such a terrible mess, old cock, he said, and walked out of the door, <laughs> probably to the nearest bar, um, which I can say, because he's dead. Um, so um, there was, a, of course, nervousness when New Labour came into office. Could they prove their credentials? Um, hence the sticking to Ken Clark's um, spending, eye-wateringly tight spending forecast for two years, which, of course, was politically quite smart in terms of tactics, with hindsight perhaps was overdoing it a bit in terms of delaying the new investment into public services that was necessary, delaying it till the turn of the millennium. And hence also, of course, the um, operational independence uh, for the Bank of England, which was, well, I say it's not foreseen. I think there was an Ed Balls Fabian Society pamphlet in the early 90s on that. And given the accounts of David Abraham's loyal attendance at Fabian Society meetings, it's quite possible that he was the only man in the country who actually knew that the Labour Party was planning to give Operation Independence the banking. But of course, that was a massive signal to the markets. And don't forget something that uh, was very unpopular on the left. That was not what Labour governments were supposed to do, to win a big majority and immediately hand over one of the big levers of power to um, unelected officials. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was quite a coup, and it's the sort of bedrock of... Uh, reducing the inflation expectations of the market uh, and the, the long-term uh, stability, low inflation, low interest rates that we've heard about. Um, now, I don't know if it's fair to quote blogs. Uh, you all know what blogs are, don't you? I, uh, I was reading something that uh, someone Andrew knows very well, Fraser Nelson, wrote on his blog yesterday describing Gordon Brown's um, responses yesterday. And he described, he described them in these terms. Gordon had got up and said, uh, Black Wednesday, minimum wage, low interest rates, yada, yada, yada. And that was uh, Y-A-D-A. It's in style for yada, yada, yada. But of course, well, you can argue about the, uh, the first two. But of course, low interest rates are, are a terribly serious business, as we were just hearing, and particularly in a time when um, credit is about to get much tighter. At the end of the fifth consecutive worst week ever for the government is quite hard for that point to get across, particularly in the chamber. And could I just say how refreshing it is, of course, to hear uh, serious and restrained and objective-ish uh, debate this morning. And I have to say the acting at the RSC is a lot better and more edifying than the acting at Westminster every uh, Wednesday at midday. And in the it, House of Commons, it, it, In the House of Commons, of course, yes. I know there are better speeches made somewhere else. Um, uh, and uh, you just see what parallel worlds we're really inhabiting to come here this morning and actually thrash out issues seriously. And, 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 and David makes his point very well and re represents his members extremely effectively. And, and the capital gains tax point in particular is important. Something I'd like to just tease out, though, um, 
for the people about to retire and sell up, this was clearly an absolutely uh, terrible shock, um, affecting people's financial planning for retirement. You know, it's, we've sort of everyone has sort of bought the um, not inaccurate representation of this as an 80% tax hike. That really brings me to my next point. If you watch uh, programs like Dragon's Den, if you um, know entrepreneurs, if you think of the young Richard Branson or the young guys who've, who launched Innocent Smoothies, for example, if you'd said to them, uh, look, great about this idea for business, um, slightly disappointing news, if in the future when you sell this business, um, I'm afraid you're, you're only going to be able to retain 82% um, of the capital gain, uh, but not 90% of it. I don't think the boys from Innocent would have said, oh, well, sod that, we're going back to advertising and management consultancy. I think entrepreneurs do things because they're slightly mad about them, because they're passionate and committed and determined to grow something and build something. I'm not sure entrepreneurs, genuine entrepreneurs, are necessarily in it for the money, actually. I mean, why hasn't Rupert Murdoch reti re retired? You know, I mean, this is about power and influence and achievement, and he's proving something. Andrew's the expert on Rupert, but... He doesn't pay any tax. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter what the tax rate is, he doesn't pay any. You, you may say that. Um, <laughs> I think I just did. You did. Um, so I think, I think we need to. So the Financial Times is in favour of the changes to the CGT. Well, uh, well, um, well, Martin Wolf, our chief economics commentator, absolutely is, and he saluted it as a wonderful piece of uh, simplification and was very robust on it and told Alistair Darling not to back down. And of course, as you'll have noticed, I inevitably sympathise with Alistair Darling, being a fellow member of that very select group, the, uh, the White Hair Black Eyebrow Club, <laughs> uh, which, I have to say, takes genetic material of a very high order uh, to, to, to enter. So, um, I'd better stop, hadn't I? Uh, <laughs> can only get worse. Um, not out of love, no, I think Denise's point was absolutely right. It's about practicalities, ne never in love, not out of love, but clearly as David and other representative organisations have been making plain, real concerns about some aspects of CGT and the Small Firm Corporation Tax. And I think Andrew's opening point is right. We're all fed up. Everyone's fed up. It's cold. We're tired. We're not getting enough sleep. We're going to too many breakfast meetings. Uh, not this way. Uh, and uh, there's a fed upness about, and we might as well go away and come back in January and think again. Thanks. Okay. Um, when the CPI is 2% and the um, LIBOR is about 6.5%, or real interbank lending is uh, closer to 7 uh, how can interest rates be low? The fact is real interest rates are about 5% at the moment. How can that be low? The six-month rate. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely, that's the short term. I mean, the next 18 months are going to be very difficult. So interest rates aren't low. Yeah, we're working that balance out between bank rates and yes? LIBOR. No, it's going to be a tricky, it's going to be very tricky. I no, think. I'm just trying to establish, because mm. you keep on talking about low interest rates, and I'm, tr I'm mm. trying to get an answer to the question, that if the CPI is 2% mm. and interbank lending is Short about 6.75%, mm. how, how can you argue that interest rates are low? Well, they're a lot lower than 10% and 12% and 15%. But, but, well, but, but hold on, inflation in these days uh, was a lot higher, so the real interest rate was um, <laughs> actually lower than it is at the moment. It's so normal, normal amount. Um, that was the Alistair Darling just saying, <laughs> you're right. No, the short-term <laughs> short prospects are, are very difficult. The long-term interest rates are low, and the long-term inflation expectations remain low, and that's okay. unheard of in the post-war period, as uh, oh. I think uh, David was talking about. All right. It's your turn now. Who would like to? Yes. John Williams, chairman of tomorrow's company. How did he do? Was he all right? He was very good. <laughs> <laughs> Love the quote, but I'm going to see King Lear next week. Um, I, I agreed with the analysis for at least a couple of the speakers that actually in the end the, 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 the question's almost wrong and, and it was a, a love that certainly shouldn't have spoken its name. Uh, and I think it isn't business's fault, it's that Labour has tried desperately hard for, uh, since 1970 to be loved by everybody all the time. Uh, and that, I think, unnatural pursuit of uh, business has been uh, something that's uh, made business very uncomfortable and has led to unexpected consequences. I give one example, which hasn't, I don't think, come up, which was the scrapping of the operating and financial review, a central plank in terms of the thinking not just by tomorrow's company, by, but by lots of people in terms of getting business to be accountable, not just, uh, uh, Denise, in terms of uh, shareholder value, but stakeholder value. 
Uh, and that was scrapped because uh, the, the now Prime Minister thought it was a, would be a very good popular deregulatory measure and actually all business had bought into it. Uh, they recognized the value. They recognized that actually it would be a positive government thing as a help uh, to actually make themselves better accountable and more sustainable as businesses. So I think my question is uh, just is, is there a way, particularly to the one and a sort of half politicians on the panel, uh, for, for, for um, polit politicians of all hues to try less hard, to, to go back to a rather healthy adversarial relationship and not try to be loved by everybody and certainly not by business. That was partly the implication of your remarks to yes, wasn't it? Yes, and I'm, I'm with Martin Wolf on this one. I think we have no, to... No, that's Stefan. Martin's not no, here. No, I am also with Martin Wolf. <laughs> in the sense that I do think that... It, Does Mrs. Wolf know that? I started to, I started to say uh, when I was talking, but then I kind of lost my thread and went elsewhere because of interventions from the, the chair. Um, <laughs> um, I, the stakeholder analysis works for business, knowing perfectly well that the shareholders are their most important stakeholders. It is not so clear for government. Government have a lot of stakeholders that they have to please and that they have to uh, look after. They are not simply <coughs> concerned with enabling business to create wealth. They're also interested in the business of redistribution of wealth. And I think that's a very important thing that we have to keep remembering when I talked about them passing each other by. They do have other constituents that they have to think, think about and look, uh, and look to. I too was very disappointed about the, uh, the dropping of, 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 the, of the review, uh, since I had carried on, I had done so much work, as you know, uh, on the review itself. Uh, however, I think the, the thrust of what was behind it when I, when I reflect upon it, I think it's probably much better that business should do it of its own accord than doing it because they were told to do it. I think the atmosphere had been created in which business felt that this is, these were issues that they should look at closely. They did. Most responsible companies have a, uh, a CSR report. Most responsible companies have learned more about themselves as corporate citizens as a result of the focus upon this. And I think it was... I think it was not a bad thing in the end, on reflection, to actually drop the legal requirement. If companies only do that sort of thing because they're legally required to do it, then they won't have the same thrust behind it as doing it because they recognise that it's in their interest to do it. So I'm a convert in that sense, although I was personally rather disappointed at the time. But you weren't disappointed they dropped CR, CSR, or it was called? Oh, I, yeah, I thought. No, no, but we were blindsided. It was a bit like the CGT. It came from nowhere, and there was no business group that was actually pressing for its removal. We never quite under, uh, um, under, understood that. But that's precisely why you don't need to make it law. If nobody's actually, you know, if, if everybody's going to do it in any event, why do you need to make it law? The, the apocryphal tale is that uh, Gordon was lobbied by um, some folk in the CBI, and that was why he um, dropped it um, to the slight uh, dismay that's, of that's um, many it, business it? leaders. That's where he announced it, wasn't it, the CBI? Mm. Okay, another question, point from the floor. Yes, the lady there. Susanna Taverne. Uh, amongst other things, I'm a non-executive director of Nationwide Building Society, uh, and I've noticed that so far uh, one of the subjects which hasn't come up uh, but seems to me to be... Um, a, a very significant one in this respect is Northern Rock. Uh, and my take on the situation with Northern Rock is that this uh, government has broadly had a reputation for competence, which ec economic competence, which has been um, one of the big factors in uh, businesses' attitude towards it. And I think the circumstances surrounding Northern Rock have really led to a blowing of that reputation. Uh, what's happened here, setting aside the business model of Northern Rock and uh, it, it's, it's, its success uh, or, 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 or strains, uh, is that the credit markets have, have turned uh, and that something which they always and inevitably do uh, and something which should have had its consequences worked through in the boardrooms of, of the country uh, has actually been mishandled in a way that it uh, led to queues on the high street and, and uh, a, a bank run, the first one in many hundred years, as many people have pointed out. And I think, I think that's a, a very, very serious failure of a regulatory system and, and an undermining of the uh, government's um, record for competence. All right, thank you for that, Denise. To be quite honest, that was, a, that was a failure of management, not a failure of regulation. That was a failure of governance, not of government. That was a failure 
precisely because the non-executives were asleep on the job, frankly. If government had stepped in at the, to, to, to say that this, should not be, this business should not be running the way it is at the time when it was making the kind of profits that it was, it was making, it would have been an outrage. The fact is that management did not stress test their business model. Anybody who thinks that you can make money on a consistent basis if you lend long and borrow short is a nutter. And frankly, that's what the Northern Rock crisis is all about. That tripartite regulatory system is robust and sensible, but it doesn't, it, the, it, the, the, the business <coughs> model that that, was, that, that that was predicated on was crazy. Would you like to come back on that? Um, I think that the business model and, and, and the um, attitude of the directors of Northern Rock is one part of the story. I, I, I do not think it's the whole of the story. I think, I think this is m much more like, if I could um, take the analogy of the Titanic, there may be enormous design faults with the ship. Uh, there are, are also the questions of the navigational systems uh, and, and, and the sheer, uh, uh, um, the, the, the existence of, of the iceberg on the other side of it. And, and at, at the point at which uh, the credit markets brought the Northern, Northern Rock un, under such stress, and, and I could, you know, the, the repercussions are far, far w wider than Northern Rock in, in the strain that the entire banking system is under. Uh, it, it, it should uh, have been possible, uh, and, and other countries uh, have found it possible uh, to, to, to find ways through without such disastrous consequences. Thank you. Would it not be fair to say that, given that the regulatory authorities were faced with a bank whose business model had gone belly up, that at the first major test for the new regulations of the tripartite structure, the structure failed the test. No, I don't think it did fail. But the why test. did the FSA not know that it this did. was a bank going? Well, why didn't it act? That's a good. I question. mean, in 1972, I mean, the, the governor of the Bank of England has already testified to the Select Committee that because of the regulatory structure and because of competition law from Europe and transparency laws that they were not able to do one of two things that would have solved the problem. Bring in a preferred bidder immediately. They couldn't do that because of European competition law. Or do a rescue in the middle of the night on a Saturday night, which they did with Kante NatWest in 1972. The regulation stopped that as well. So the structure, by the words of the governor of the Bank of England, failed the first test. I think it would have been a good idea if the FSA had kept its eye out for the outliers. This was an outlier as far as the business model is concerned. And I think, I think if, if I will concede anything in this area, I'll concede that possibly the FSA should have queried that business model at an earlier, uh, earlier stage. I, I think that the uh, Bank of England enti uh, acted entirely properly. It is not the Bank of England's role to, uh, to, to, to step in to uh, save failing businesses. I think it is, uh, I think the competition... But that's um, what it's done. It, it is, yeah. it, it is allowing... No, 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 it is the, it, exactly, it operates as a lender of last resort, not to save a failing business, to operate in the, as a lender of last resort in order to look after the, to the, 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 the financial system as a whole. And I think it hasn't acted as a lender of last resort. It said it, it, it guarantees every single deposit in Northern Rock. Yeah. It is doing That's that. That's what it's it done. Yes, it is doing So that. it has stepped in to do a failing business. I, mean, and, I, I would the love the Bank of England now the to step solution. in and guarantee my profits for the next 12 months. That's true. And I'm not sure that, uh, that the uh, European Commission will allow that to go on for very much longer oh. because of, uh, because of um, state aid. But I do think that the market solution which to, to this issue is one which is entirely appropriate <coughs> and, will, and, and, and will, I'm quite certain, be resolved relatively shortly. Add something here? Um, of course. The, the, the problem with the man it's only the fault of management argument is that having stepped in, why leave that management in place, it seems to me. Um, well, it's gone now. Well, yes, but it, um, there, there, was, there was quite a period where, where it was still in place uh, and wasn't being uh, challenged. <laughs> Apparently, the FSA did know for some time, and having rather boringly read through the minutes of the select committee <laughs> and so on last night, thinking it might come up today, August the 14th was apparently the date at which um, the FSA was aware. <laughs> Discussions were raised, and we got into this and it got into this rather sort of Delphic conversation about when did you really know? Ah, but when was it minuted that you knew that you knew that you knew? Um, and it kind of feels like once you're in that space, you're into people kind of just not really judging it and not taking ownership of it and not leading it. So I, th I think there is a management issue. 
Um, but there are also arguments that short-term credit could be pumped into the system. Um, I think that, in a sense, the government has, has, has struck a rod for its own back uh, because having stepped in, which is possibly a good thing, um, and who would have thought that the days of it, uh, It's a Wonderful Life would have been relived on the sort of streets of um, the North um, in our kind of lifetime. You know, nice black and white film, you see it every Christmas. Gosh, now it's a real thing you kind of live through. Um, you then get um, the government leaving the management team in place um, and um, it not being clear who of that fabulous tripartite structure is actually supposed to lead and make critical and tough judgments. And I think it's a leadership issue there. Well, I, I think the bank, the, the run on Northern Rock really has more in common with the bank run in Mary Poppins than <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life. Because, you know, It's a Wonderful Life, the Federal Reserve didn't step in to and say who's it. who's James Stewart? I mean, there is no James Stewart. So. Well, he's not Certainly the, no uh, angels. He's anyway. not the guy from Time Castle, <laughs> sure. Just a yeah. slightly different uh, take on this. I've just spent the last three days uh, on the road uh, in the Midlands and the North just uh, talking to endless businesses, uh, small micro, even micro businesses, and asking them about the credit crunches it's impacted on. I have not found a single example of any business that has been hit by the credit crunch uh, to date. And they have a very real concern uh, that by this, this relentless focus bum, bum, on this, we are in grave danger, uh, and I've heard this from dozens of businesses in the last three days, of talking ourselves uh, bum, into recession. Uh, I've talked to bankers, I've talked to... Th for, for small businesses that are seeking to borrow money, that are seeking to develop, there is not a problem out there. Okay, thank you, that's interesting. Yes, gentlemen there. My name's Mick Fielty, um, and uh, you mentioned a blogger earlier on, I like blogger. It's a confessional. <laughs> uh, I haven't yet kind of entered the 12-step program. Yet. Uh, <laughs> so I've recently started a blog for the Daily Telegraph, the, the Grassland blog. Um, I haven't concentrated on North Ireland for a long time, so I'm kind of coming to the, the, the sort of British political state scene with kind of new eyes. And it seems to me, I just wanted to kind of try and recalibrate the discussion somewhat around the love thing. Um, Margot is obviously the suitor uh, who's trying to take um, business away. Uh, people, it seems to me, on the panel seem so far relatively unimpressed with, with not with George Osborne, I think the, the, I'm personally quite depressed with him in terms of his potential. But what is it that the Conservatives need to do over the next couple of years, do you think, um, to try and engage businesses' attention? And what kind of things can you offer that um, the New Labour has failed to do over the last 10 years? Okay, good question. I think that we have to um, look at a few basics. And I think we're already looking at education. Uh, we've, I mentioned briefly the terrible situation of lack of skills and so many people not reading and writing properly. And we have got some proposals to liberate schools and introduce more competition within the education sector and also to return to a far more rigorous system of examination and there's a whole raft of proposals there which I think get at some of the root causes. Uh, we are undoubtedly focusing on wealth creation although I did take your, your point that I think that all political parties at the moment do focus too much on distribution and cutting the cake and not enough on wealth creation but we are definitely focused on reducing, reducing taxes on business, um, funding those reductions um, by taxes on environmentally unfriendly behaviour. And, and we're also looking to um, reduce taxes overall uh, over the period of a government, um, which should channel more uh, into the, the business community and the employment that, that uh, we seek to create. So those are just a few areas where I think our party are on a bid um, to get a, a closer relationship with business. Uh, but, but not as an end in itself. Uh, not, you know, there was a point raised uh, on the other side of the room about politicians looking to be loved by everyone. And I do hope that we avoid that trap. I think um, we've been more focused on not being hated by everyone uh, as a party. Um, and we've been moderately successful there. Uh, but I do hope we don't go down that other route because I do think that is a mistake. Uh, we're not out for the business vote. We're not out to be loved by business. We're out 
to run the economy sensibly, get control of public expenditure, um, and give our children a decent education, and getting the basics right. And if we get that right, um, no one will ever love a government, but at least people will respect us. But I think, Mark, there have, have to be detail. I mean, for example, the inheritance tax proposal was politically extremely effective, very clever, delivered with some panache and boldness. The detail of it, so far, is, well, there isn't any. I mean, it's a wish based on a guess, based on an estimate. Um, same with the uh, incapacity benefit cuts that apparently are magically going to be achieved. So I think, and the Conservative Party does have time now, probably two, two and a half years, perhaps, to, to lay out the detail, and, and, it'll, and it'll have to be forthcoming. Why do they need to lay out the detail when they just have yeah, to come absolutely. up with an idea and the government pinches it anyway? I mean, yeah. I mean, basically, Tory central office is the government's think tank and yeah, policy. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, I don't think, no, I don't think that'll, that'll be sustainable in the, in the run-up to an election. It's just I said. a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't do, we don't do that. We don't do jokes. Right at the back. <laughs> don't do jokes at the FT. So hard. <laughs> you say that again. Rape from the Sage Group PLC, and I know that when I left uh, Newcastle yesterday morning, it was definitely in Technicolor. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's very easy to get obsessed with uh, FTSE 100 companies and, and, and listed companies and companies with multi-million pound turnover. And I, I would agree very much with David Frost's comment that this is, it's to me and certainly to the Sage Group, we serve hundreds and hundreds of thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. It's about creating a culture where they can thrive. Um, and the biggest thing that they say to us all the time is bureaucracy. And I know it's an easy headline to say red tape and we can put a figure on it. But things like employment legislation is a complete minefield for these small businesses. So it's very easy to talk about Northern Rock, who I can see from my window at work and the building is still there. Um, but, you know, it's things like employment legislation and creating that environment that they can do what they really want to do. And Stefan, I know you mentioned about, you know, are they really bothered where they make that extra little bit of tax? I would argue that they, they don't go in there thinking of CGT and, and those sorts of things. Most people are doing this because it's a lifestyle business, they're, they're getting out of something else. You know, and, and we can talk at Westminster about lots and lots of different things, but you know, you've got to boil it down to the lifeblood of the economy, and that's not FTSE 100. Yes, they're enormously important, we're lucky enough to be one of them, but you've got to think of the small business people doing it day to day and from their kitchen and that kind of thing. All right. Um Microphone to the gentleman there in the white shirt. Hi, Ollie Barrett, Connected Capital and Make Your Mark with the Tenant. To Stefan's point uh, about what might or might not motivate entrepreneurs, so I just wonder if we applied a similar uh, conversation to uh, pensions and we returned from a conversation with some school children and young people with the brilliant news that they're not talking about pensions at all. They couldn't give a monkeys. Therefore, you can forget anything about people with a slightly wider or longer view uh, looking after them and giving uh, some thought to putting plans in place. So. Uh, to Stefan's love of Shakespeare, does not the appetite alter, and might not those concerns change over time. Uh, on a slightly more serious point, though... He didn't say that, did he? Aside from, he said exactly that. Uh, not, not in blank verse, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a more serious point, though, all that I've noticed from talking to dozens of entrepreneurs on this particular subject is that it affects not just them, but also the investors thinking about placing some money in their companies and also their employee shareholders. So it is uh, a much wider concern than that and uh, one that uh, I've never experienced uh, a reaction uh, like it. And uh, someone who spends perhaps too much of my time in conversation with entrepreneurs, uh, a real uh, sea change in opinion on this one alone. Okay, yeah. thank you for that. Yes. My name's Neil Stewart. I'm a director of editorial intelligence and probably a serial entrepreneur. Um, and I distinctly remember Julia showing me pictures of Gordon Brown in a very nice taper chart when I was invited to invest. I think I want to support the stuff that David did. <laughs> Sorry about that's that. All, I'm sure that's all she showed me. Um, I want to support the point that David's making about different kinds of businesses. I mean, I sold my first business before the taper was brought in. And uh, I then plunged back in, partly because of the taper, when I uh, then bought it back in 2002. The taper made it a bit of a no-brainer for People like me who have accountants on our back all the time saying, if you've got a bit of money, spend it on property, spend it on other things. And therefore, you choose to do a bit extra. And it's not quite as rational as the spreadsheet cowboys who work for some of the bigger companies on the absolute margins. Um, and it's a big issue of trust about changing the rules halfway through. I'll make another point about entrepreneurs as somebody who is over 50. 
You know, Branson doesn't even know he's over 50 yet. Uh, somebody needs to tell him. But for most people, <laughs> when you get over 50 and you're running a business, you do think in horizons of two years and four years. And actually, the two-year element of the taper yeah. is also important because people can think they can see that far ahead. Um, so that kind of thing's important. That's why inheritance tax uh, matches so much. It won't stop us doing business, but it is a trust issue. Now, previously, like Tony, I worked for the Labour Party. I worked for Neil Kinnock. Uh, at that time, we were simply trying to get business to speak to Labour. Well, actually, we were trying to get Labour to speak to business, which was the, which was the truth. Um, the prawn cocktail circuit and various other things. A business analogy would be that by the time uh, of the eve of the 97 election, business was probably prepared to give uh, Tony Blair maybe 30 days credit on paying his bills. Uh, that probably went up to 60 days. It's probably been bumped right back down to about zero, and some people are not going to do business with them unless they put money up front. It's a, it seems to me that it's a trust issue. And finally, on love's labour's lost. I think what's happening with business at the moment is they're doing a bit of speed dating with the other parties. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm part of Andrew's team. I think uh, Vince Cable is doing remarkably well in the current time. But however, the problem for the Conservatives is that uh, people run round, they do the speed dating, and it's only when they sit down opposite the Conservative candidate that they get the bad breath. And the bad <laughs> breath is Europe. And I think a lot of business people, certainly senior ones, are still going to have question marks until the Conservatives can show that they've got some stable view on Europe. So speed dating, but there's still the danger of bad breath. Right. It's quite a lot for breakfast, really. Yeah. <laughs> Let's, uh, yes, there's a gentleman. Anyone else? It's a couple more before we let you get back to the day job. Gentlemen up at the back. Yes, please. Uh, hi there. Uh, Martin Coder from uh, Lanson's Public Affairs, which is a euphemism for lobbyist. Um, nobody's mentioned the um, entertaining political sideshow that's been the private equity um, debate over the past 12 months. Uh, and I bring that up, I think, I think it illustrates a very interesting point. The question that's been posed today is, has, has Labour fallen out of love with business? But actually, I think people have mainly focused on the government, if you like, the sort of the leadership of the Labour Party rather than the Labour Party itself. Um, uh, if you look at the, the evolution of that private equity debate, it's actually been a really old-fashioned kind of class consciousness-led debate, like a throwback to the 80s. In fact, that's why I find it so entertaining. Good work for lobbyists, too. Um, but... Um, when you look at what's actually happened, the CGT, which has been discussed quite a lot this morning, has been the, the, the only one outcome from that, even though there are lots of other issues surrounding people's terms and conditions and companies that are bought out, about excessive leverage in the marketplace, about market abuse, and so on and so forth. And it looks like um, Gordon Brown has actually just tried to... Um, and he's, he's, he's actually got his, um, some of the major private equity big hitters onto his business council. So it looks like he's manoeuvring to actually protect those guys, whilst the sort of the backbenchers uh, are still squealing uh, about all, all the other issues. So I'm just interested to hear what the, what the panel think about that debate, because personally I think it, it illustrates that the Labour Party is very much out of love with, with businesses, particularly if they can portray them as casino capitalists, I think is the phrase, whereas the sort of inner core of, of the government, the leadership of the Labour Party, is still very much in there with, with business, particularly if it's very, very rich business. So which private equity company are you lobbying on behalf of? Possibly comment. <laughs> Couldn't possibly comment. Is that bigger than Apex or uh, smaller than um, Texas Pacific? Are the Tories in love with private equity? <clears throat> well, I think it was George Osborne that did say when that issue was right at the top of the agenda that if it looks like income and it works like income, then it should be taxed like income. So I think that o Osborne and our party are more focused on fairness and a level playing field. Uh, between big business and small business. So can, that's um, can I just clarify then that, that, that your understanding would be conservative policy to tax private equity gains at income tax, which would be 40%, rather than as it has been at the CGT level, which was 10 and may now be 18. You think it should be taxed I, as income? I don't believe that we've come out with that level of detail, but since you know our policy well, so well, Andrew, I'm sure you'll enlighten me in a minute. Um, but I don't no, think actually, we're, we've leveled that. Find, um, find don't out. think we've come out with that, that level of detail as yet. I'm just quoting what George Osborne said as, if you like, to give you a sort of ethos of, of the direction that we're, that we're taking on that side. But I'd also like to address the point that you made about um, the Labour Party and its view of business, because I think you raise the whole issue of, well, 
how much has the Labour Party really changed? How successful was Tony Blair in transforming the Labour Party? And I think in the Labour Party's attitude to business, I gave evidence at the Health Select Committee a couple of years ago, and they were doing an inquiry into the marketing practices of the pharmaceutical industry. And I didn't feel that those Labour MPs questioning me had changed at all. And one last thing, I did rummage through my handbag, as you asked. And I found an interesting statistic. 38% of Conservative MPs have a business background, as set against just 7% of Labour MPs. Is doing PR for Carlton count as a business background? Well, that, I think Carlton that is a, that's a bit unfair on Carlton. I think it's a, it might not be a private equity company, but it is a business. Was. <laughs> uh, it's quarter to ten now. I'm going to bring this uh, to, to an end. I've never talked so much about sex at breakfast time since I was a student. Um, <laughs> no, we ended on sex. It began as love, but it ended in sex. Um, just before uh, I hand back to Julia, I'd like to thank you all for coming uh, here today on behalf of uh, Editorial Intelligence, the Cass Business School, and the Business Magazine. I'm glad there have been many, many uh, references to Shakespeare uh, this morning, because on the cover of the Business Magazine today, which I think you all see lying around you there, we have Mr. Brown as Macbeth. So we are clearly, <laughs> pre 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 clearly predicted the zeitgeist of this meeting. Before I hand back to Julia, could we have a big round of applause for our panel, please?